you're not going to always change your macros every week, regardless of whether you're in a muscle building phase or a fat loss phase. I think it neglects other components of transformation that will put you in a you know better place for sort of resiliency and sustainability long term. If you're consuming ketone esters and getting above two millimolar, then you're shutting off your fat burning process as evidenced by the decrease in ketones productions. Every diet works short term. And what works long-term is something that is, you know, harmonized with your psychology, ideally your genetics, your goals. Training is only useful if you can adapt from it. So the way in which to recalibrate one's belief in themselves is to unlock the potential that they have within themselves by taking performance expenses out. The first lens through which we make decisions in nutrition is remove the toxic burden. Then we say minimize inflammation. Then we say eat to fuel the microbiome. It sounds like you, you know, take what I will call a systems approach to nutrition, like you're going system by system and going which one needs to be addressed rather than uh, what most nutritionists seem to be doing these days. And that's kind of a macro approach, right? Most nutritionists out there just say, it's all about macro, and I meant most, but many say it's all about, all about macros, just hit these macros and you're going to be great. Whereas there's this, this other camp that suggests that yes, of course, macros matter, but there's also these other other physiological realities, such as stress, such as sleep, such as inflammation, insulin resistance, that are going to impact decision making around nutrition. Um, so can you speak to, to kind of both sides of that? For sure. So I can appreciate where I think macros were born out of the idea that sometimes we need simplification to breed understanding within the industry. And if things are overly complicated, people have a hard time executing or adhering to that. However, you know, with macros, we lose sight of things like micros. And, and you and I actually discussed it a bit before the podcast, you know, looking at the importance of micronutrients. So when we're taking a macro approach, that's a single toggle. So if I were to look at when I when I view transformation, roughly, just if, if we're going to focus on maybe seven to 10 priorities, you know, I, I call them kind of the 10 toggles. But essentially with our transformation toggles, um, macros would be just one of the, you know the many things we could do. Someone could eat the same amount of macros, but be in a micro, you know, be in a state of micronutrient deficiency. We actually see that a lot with chronic dieting. One of the, I think the most underrated components of transformation right now is simply when you subtract calories. Unless you're making more nutrient dense choices as you've made that calorie subtraction, if you just eat the same and reduce your portion size, you've now not only created this sort of energy deficit, which you do, you know, you are sort of approaching fat loss from that perspective if you're using the macro based view, but you are also subtracting micronutrients unless you're backfilling that with supplementation or you are sort of making a very conscious decision to make nutritional choices uh, based on your new sort of calorie and macro intake, I think you're going to run into trouble. So macros are just one thing for me. I look at mac uh, overall macronutrient intake. I would look at micronutrient intake. Uh, we'll look at things like nature and time outside. Uh, I'm very, very big on stress management. We've mentioned that obviously with shreds already sleep. So even just there, we have four or five toggles that we can play with at the outset from whether you're a beginner, whether you're intermediate or advanced, we can look at these additional things because guess what? You're not going to always change your macros every week, regardless of whether you're in a muscle building phase or a fat loss phase. I think it neglects other components of transformation and also just sort of improving yourself as a human being that will put you in a you know better place for sort of resiliency and sustainability long-term. So when I'm looking at those toggles, 
you know, maybe it's not a macro change that we need. Maybe I, we noticed that because we were pushing some form of training or exercise movement, uh, you were actually really sedentary the rest of the week. And so we actually need not to sort of change our macros. Maybe what we actually needed to do was look at our non-exercise uh, activity and getting outside more. Potentially that was the issue there. So really depending on where a client is, in their lifespan and uh, where they are currently with their health, that's going to influence what we're doing. But I do agree. Many people take the macro-based approach. I view macros as a tool in a toolbox, as opposed to the single frame that you're going to look through. There will be clients that um, really love and succeed with macros. There are also people where that may not serve them um, you know, to the highest level of what they need to actually reach that physical goal that they have, or maybe their physical goal isn't specific to the point where, you know, they're going to thrive with those macros. But I think to neglect things like, um, basic human movement and walking, and you talk about breathing quite a bit here on the podcast, uh, I think it neglects so many elements of health that really play into it. So I do take more of a full body systems approach. And that's just from what I've noticed in, in transformation is, you know, we have these issues where people aren't actually sustaining their weight loss, or maybe they did lose weight, but now they're in a state of HPA axis overactivation, thyroid downregulation, and transient changes with reproductive hormones. And then we end up in a state where I don't have optimal thyroid output. So I don't feel like maybe have, I don't have that energy. I have brain fog. Uh, I'm not able to do the non-exercise movement that I enjoy, or maybe my training sessions are compromised. So if we were to look at total daily energy expenditure and you really wanted to just break it down in a formulaic component for those who are maybe a bigger fan of, of math versus sort of this philosophical approach that Ben and I are talking about, if we look at total daily energy expenditure in that chronic dieter example, what we're seeing is likely what's happened is they've downregulated their non-exercise activity and they're having compromised performance in the gym, which is going to be detriment to their exercise activity. And now we're not building quite as much muscle either because we're having subpart training sessions with maybe the lack of focus or intentionality that we had previously, or we can't exert the same effort. So by taking the full body systems perspective and also looking at stress and energy as your main variables and just understanding that macros are a single toggle within kind of that framework and looking at energy, I think it gives you a lot more power to adjust things when things either don't go your way or maybe things are going well and we don't necessarily need a macro change. So it's certainly a tool. I'm not opposed to those who choose to use that tool, but I think only looking at that tool neglects key components of health and longevity for uh, most humans. Great explanation. So the way I tend to approach it or I believe is that People, when they begin a, a, a diet plan, typically have a higher amount of fat. Their energy expenditure is typically higher. They usually see a pretty significant loss in the first one to three months just by adjusting macros. But there seems to always become a point where um, the fat loss seems to stop and it's almost like the, the muscle loss starts to exceed the fat loss. So at that point, it's like, okay, that lever, as you say, that toggle has stopped working as much. Now we need to kind of eat to fuel performance, as you say, and increase calories a little bit so you can you can take a performance view of transformation. So you lose a bunch of fat and now we get to a point your body starts to lose muscle. Okay, now you got to stop that. You got to blunt the, the muscle loss, fuel performance to allow you to, to work harder in the gym, to have that greater uh, non-exercise energy expenditure and therefore maintain the muscle as you then use that performance to continue to burn fat. Does that sound like it kind of aligns with your thought? Yeah, that's a very succinct way to sort of outline that. And, and just for those kind of listening, you know, uh, wherever you may find yourself, just to understand that non-exercise movement is not necessarily just your walks, right? It could be, I might be having this conversation with Ben and if I'm in a significantly dieted state or, you know, Ben, if you were to think back to your contest preps, like, are you talking with your hands as much? Are you, are your eyes moving as much? Are you, are you as animated? You know, we, even the slight little changes in energy output there, I think that's very, very important. And what we're learning 
now this is going to be more of like evolutionary sort of anthropology here and looking at nutrition through that lens but you know my my concern is looking at metabolism as it's additive the entire time versus sort of compensatory like more activity and less food without periodization i think puts us in a a problematic position so I think with periodization, you can use that lever of less energy and as you said, maybe more movement and that brought that person to fat loss. But now what have we created? So we've essentially used, even if it's not necessarily a fully fasted state, what we've attempted to do is improve the insulin sensitivity through a reduction in overall energy, which then improved our ability to regulate or store that energy, which you can essentially think of as, you know, whether that's looking at our fasted insulin, our fasted blood glucose and our overall tolerance of carbohydrates there, as well as food in general. And then from that position, yes, you know, Ben brings up a good point. Could we feel performance potentially add a bit of calories? Uh, some people colloquially would refer to that as like a recovery or reverse diet. And then through that point in time, are we then getting on the upswing where we get these increases in movement performance? We've now brought, you know, our calories back up to this place where we're in this other phase. You know, I would refer to that as more of a building or kind of break phase. Whereas, you know, when we're in a diet, you know, a dieted state or just calorie reduction and, and significant amounts of movement, and this is assuming that you are Someone who's very diligent and deliberate with that, obviously, as a population, you look at Western population, Western society, there are a lot of individuals who may be more inherently um, a little bit lazy, for lack of a better word, or, or less prone to movement. I think if that's the case, we just need to simply focus on getting folks a little bit more active and making better nutritional choices. But the listeners on this podcast, uh, for the most part, are individuals who have gone through some form of maybe fitness program, nutrition program. They're not, uh, we're not quite at that novice level or completely, you know, we're not going from couch potato to, you know, uh, you know, full-blown kind of gym time overnight. So when we think of those individuals, we have to understand that if we don't actually periodize things, if we're not managing that stressor over time, we, we basically get to a state, and this is especially common um, I think when it comes to female metabolism, but we do see this in men as well, get to a place with lower calories and you keep increasing movement, I have nowhere to go from there. And it can be very frustrating because it's either you try to eat progressively less, which maybe isn't sustainable based on your hunger and your overall energy levels or your uh, lack of recovery from the gym. You know, so that's that's kind of the biggest thing. You kind of get into that position where either I can't subtract more calories or I can't necessarily move more. It's just not feasible during my day if you have to work or you have kids or anything else like that. So you, you basically get to a place where you don't really have many more toggles from the food and nutrition perspective. So that's where we kind of have to back out of that and uh, position ourselves. And I think that's where zooming out and looking at stress and energy and how we can periodize that and intentionally create stimulus uh, as needed and then also withdraw that from time to time to allow for recovery, we might be more sort of receptive to that subsequent stimulus after taking a break. Or like you said, maybe we fuel performance and after whatever period is needed for fueling performance, we can then make another nutritional change and go from there. It doesn't have to be quite as static. But I think uh, a big point there is just regarding, you know, when I referred to sort of the anthropological component, it's just when we look at individuals who walk a lot or are very active or more tribal communities, if they were to use um, kind of one of the original methods for looking at energy expenditure, uh, especially outside the realm of a lab, what you see is that additive, what we would expect to be additive is not always additive, which means the adaptive physiology component of metabolism comes into play where we're getting these compensatory changes where our body's saying, hey, this is a lot of energy output. Hey, this is, you know, maybe I'm not getting quite as much food and and what do I need to do that's optimal for survival and preserving, you know, basically fertility and the ability for humans to continue to exist. And if 
while as antiquated as that may seem, a lot of times we come back to these primal considerations when we're looking at our health, fitness, and nutrition journey. The electrical potential within a cell is actually a consequence of ATP production. There's a sodium potassium ATPase that maintains that membrane potential. You know, realize this, even when I was an undergrad, I started doing patch clamp electrophysiology is that the membrane potential starts to become de-energized when the energy, when the bioelectric uh, status of the cell decreases. So that's, it's all about giving the cell the proper metabolite substrate for energy production, uh, decreasing ROS production, making sure the cofactors are there. Like, you know, B vitamins, B12, B, you know, another thing to look at is to do a nutritional status, you know, and I always recommend not only vitamin D, magnesium, and uh, but also various B vitamins, B12, B1. If these things are not there, the bioenergetic state of the cell and the electrical potential of the cell will be dysregulated. So we look at this, I mean, this is kind of what we do. We do use different dyes to look at membrane potential in the mitochondria and membrane potential of the cell. And then we figure out what disrupts it. And then we develop countermeasures that we ultimately move to humans to preserve that. So one of my early observations was that, and I looked at lactate, uh, alpha L polylactate, which is a product Cytomax that like I, when I was into mountain biking, I used to drink. And so I got into that and different forms of glucose. But when I stumbled across ketones and started delivering ketones in different concentrations, I realized that I could preserve the mitochondria and the cellular membrane potential, even under really high levels of stress. So that could be dumping on glutamate, which is an excitotoxin, high pressure oxygen, different environmental chemicals and things that would typically disrupt the cellular energy. The cells were much more resilient if they were burning ketones as an energy source. So this, I did not have an interest in ketones, but it just, it was one of the things that I studied at the time in 2007 or eight, I guess, that led me down the path of the ketogenic diet. And I only knew it of, of a diet that was used in extreme bodybuilding for cutting, but it was like far from optimal. But I started researching and I was like, whoa, it's an anti-seizure diet. So then I went down that rabbit hole of the ketogenic diet. So when it comes to the electrical bioenergetic state of the cell, the things that I have researched that really had a high yield effect was basically, you know, burning ketones, you know, and, and I did it from a Petri dish, you know, we had hippocampal neurons and we had cortex neurons. And then that, got basically, you know, translated into looking at brain tissue and then mice and then rats and then ultimately humans. How often when are you using ketone supplements now, Dom? This morning, like when I wake up, I'll take third of a packet of Keto Start, which is like by Audacious Nutrition. It's like really concentrated electrolyte. Ketone salts, but, right? Yeah, yeah. And the salt blend, most ketone salts on the market basically just give me diarrhea. <laughs> It's really bad. Like pretty much all of them do. There's a formulation that there's a product that I really like called Element. Rob Wolf makes it. It's like yep. electrolyte. Yep. So the Keto Star uses the that ratio of electrolytes, but it binds beta hydroxybutyrate to the electrolytes. So you're giving the electrolytes, and then you're giving you know ketones at the same time. Uh, so I'll take I'll do a third of the packet in the morning with like creatine and acetyl L-carnitine. So I'll mix that together 
And then I drink that and just with water. So it's really no calories. And then I go out like this morning, I let the cows out. I walk around barefoot. I get a lot of bright sun as the sun's coming up. And then I jump in the pool and swim a couple laps. And then I come in and start brewing my coffee and getting my workstation, getting things up, <laughs> up and running. So that's like my normal routine. And then I'll take the rest of the packet around like two o'clock in the afternoon. And then I'll mix that up and then it'll just give me a second, a second wind. If I'm hiking or doing like extreme stuff, when I lived in the undersea environment for 10 days underwater, I was consuming a lot of exogenous ketones and looking at the effects on oxidative markers and things like that. So yeah, I'm a big fan of, you know, I have, I have a whole bunch of <laughs> ketones around the office behind me. So we have like probably 30 or more molecules. I mean, most of my research has been on ketone esters, but then as I progressed, then I realized that I was kind of not very favorable from you uh, taking a big load of sodium. And then I realized that sodium is actually like one of, like a performance enhancing substance. And I kind of load on sodium before I go train, especially in Florida. So the ketone salt is actually perfect because I'm getting my electrolytes like element, but delivering beta hydroxybutyrate, which is like really a nootropic. So I think of, I experiment with a lot of different nootropics. I find that beta hydroxybutyrate is probably up there with the top and you're, it's not a stimulant, although if you use like keto start that has caffeine in it, then there's a, a definitely a synergy between ketones and caffeine that have been, you know, studied and reported on. So that's something that I use also if I'm writing and I just need a lot of cognitive, you know, energy. Not really a difference in efficacy with the salts versus the esters? Well, with the esters, you have to be sort of careful because uh, esters are more potent and we're using them in some of our, it depends on the context of what you're using it for. So an ester will boost your ketones above two millimolar up to three and four. What happens when you boost your ketone levels to two millimolar is that you start pumping out insulin. Hmm. So, and then that's how we actually regulate ketones. When we go on a ketogenic diet, our ketones become elevated and then we pee out ketones. That's called ketone urea. And then as the ketones get elevated, the ketones will then stimulate the pancreas to release a little bit of insulin and that decreases fat oxidation in the liver, beta oxidation of fatty acids in the liver. So, you know, that the insulin, as Ben Bickman <laughs> talked about, the insulin will shut off the fat burning process, which is not good if you're using ketones for recomp. If you're consuming ketone esters and getting above two millimolar, then you're shutting off your fat burning process as evidenced by the decrease in ketones production. So if so, the bottom line is that if you take a ketone supplement and you're shooting above two millimolar, maybe even 1.5, then you're decreasing fatty acid oxidation by virtue of releasing insulin and you're also decreasing ketone production and then what happens like if you're on a standard diet and you take a and i've done this many many times i've taken more ketone esters than anybody on the planet i was doing this back in back in like 2008 before anyone knew what ketone esters were i had patrick arnold making some actually he'd be a good guy to have on your podcast you know patrick, with him. yeah i don't know man i'd love to be yeah he was making stuff for me and i was consuming it you know uh and so what happens if you're on a standard diet and you take a big dose of ketone esters and you shoot up to like five millimolar, you definitely feel like euphoric and wired, but then your ketones go up and then your ketones go down and it prevents your body from making ketones if you take a big dose. And then you're hypoketotic and hypoglycemic because you're released insulin. It basically facilitates glucose 
uh, disposal in tissue, the insulin does. And then you get a headache after. So I kept getting these headaches. I would consume a lot and then I'd have like energy, but then I would get a headache. Then I started doing a lot of blood work. Patrick started making ketone salts for me. And we were like, the only ketone salt on the market was sodium beta hydroxybutyrate. And then we were like, hey, why don't we just take other electrolytes and start making? So Patrick was doing this in the lab. He was sending it to me. I was consuming it, doing blood work. And we realized that the ultimate approach would really be electrolyte supplement that would deliver the ketones. So you're getting like a twofer. So, right. And then the, the electrolytes, basically the mineral load that you get kind of prevents you from going above 1.5 to 2 millimolar. So every time I've measured insulin and as many times I've measured insulin with a maximum tolerable dose of a ketone salt. And it's like, it's a barely moves a needle. So I can get quite a lot of ketones in my system with a ketone salt and the taste is way better actually it tastes pretty good and uh the keto star product does it tastes pretty good and then it gets my ketones to where i feel it it delivers the electrolytes i'm not dumping insulin it's not shutting off my own ketone production so these are what i use sort of on a daily basis for my you know workout i'll take that two-thirds of a pack with some creatine before i go working out although for like different you know, for cancer, for different like glucose transporter deficiency syndrome, like rare metabolic diseases and certain forms of epilepsy. I think the, the ketone esters may have more potential there because you just want to get the levels high and keep it high to manage certain serious medical disorders. So I think of like ketone esters, they're always going to taste bad. They're pr probably always going to be kind of expensive. They're great for medical applications, but you can get a lot of like 90 to 80% of the ketone benefits from the ketone salts, and then actually avoid some of the side effects, the hyperinsulinemia that could be a, a result of the ketone esters. So it sounds like you're doing about one meal a day, doing the ketones in the morning and then two, and then larger dinner. Or yeah, meals in the actually, I, you know, I used to do intermittent fasting, but I was losing too much weight. <laughs> so, you know, I, I cruised along at like 230, 225, 230 for many years, but now I'm down to like 210. And I think I'm at a good just like weight for my body. But if I do intermittent fasting more, I just tend to lose weight. So I do, I do the ketones in the morning with a lot of water. I drink a lot of water and I do the ketones with uh, acetyl carnitine. Carnitine is a, a good fat burner and a good, uh, with the creatine. And then I go outside, do my thing. And then, yeah, I eat, I eat breakfast like an hour or two when my wife wakes up, usually about two hours later, like we have breakfast and it's like a keto breakfast. And then, uh, and then I eat a small protein rich lunch, usually like sardines or a little bit of chicken or something, but just a small amount. And then my biggest meal is probably uh, dinner where I eat probably about 50% of my calories kind of at dinner, but we've been trying to eat it a little bit early because I don't like to eat, disrupt my sleep at night. So I get a lot of calories in around like five to like six yep. and then just kind of coast uh, and just nibble at nighttime a little bit with like some berries or just like a little keto ice cream or something at nighttime, but I try to not what's disrupt. What's a keto sleep. breakfast look like, Stom? We're, we're on the same page. I'm just curious if, if I'm doing it right. What's the keto breakfast look like for you? So this morning, actually I had, from last night, we cooked scallops for dinner. So I had uh, like 10 eggs, but just two yolks because I gave the yolks to my dogs and I put in some scallops and I cooked it in uh, in olive oil. And uh, so it was really high in protein, not super high in fat. It was like high protein, moderate fat, essentially no carbs. See if I have, yeah. For lunch, 
Yeah, I have sardines. So wild planet sardines. Uh, <laughs> Man, I heard you sold out like Whole Foods around the country. We spoke about that on Tim Ferriss. Is that true? I that's what I heard. Actually, yeah, we <laughs> talked to the company that way. You know, and I, I experiment. I don't always have Wild Planet. We probably have like five different. You know, we could probably have like five different brands of sardines and mackerel at the house. Yeah. But you know, I eat a lot of beef. But I noticed that when I started decreasing my beef consumption and adding more, batting back in more like chicken and fish, my LDL went down. And I don't know the atherogenic risk of having a very high LDL on a ketogenic diet, which gets a lot of attention, probably more attention than it should be getting, <laughs> you know, these days. Uh, but mine was was really elevated and I brought it down to the upper range of normal just by incorporating, switching out less fatty. I was eating, you know, a lot of fatty ground meat and kind of phasing that out and just getting more fish and more chicken. Uh, I still eat beef quite often, but we get beef from like a local, you know, grass fed, grass finished. And maybe that makes a difference too with bringing it down. But, uh, the day before that I had liver and, uh, chicken liver. So my, my wife, uh, grew up eating a lot of liver in Hungary and Budapest, Hungary. So I have liver a couple times a month. You know, we have that mostly chicken liver and chicken hearts. So I think tonight we had she had falling out chicken hearts so we eat a lot of beef liver chicken liver hearts a lot of heart a lot of all different kinds of fish and quite a lot of beef uh we give our dogs everything that we eat our dogs eat too so you've done many diets and uh, the last one that i was kind of referring to earlier is you're doing a fast one day and then i think you're doing a high high calorie high fat the next, if you want to kind of walk through it, that was, I figured it was like three and one. I forget it was a couple of years back, but uh, wondering how important the days that lead up to your fast are for you. Is it, is it keto or are you just like, mom's going to eat whatever? I know you've done so much experimenting. Yeah. Again, we cover all of that in the book. There's not too much between a weight and I, there's not too many diets we, we haven't tried with and play with. And I mean, I, one of the key messages, like every diet works short term. And what works long-term is something that is, you know, harmonized with your psychology, ideally your genetics, your goals. And, you know, it's not a a static thing. I mean, a lot of times you have to change your diet. And of course you you did that in your bodybuilding days, you'd have anabolic periods where you're eating a surplus. And then these dietary restriction phases where you get shredded for a show. Yeah. The the diet you're referring to was an all day fast. And basically you would eat one day, fast the next, eat one day, fasting, say fast, like fast, you basically was a 36 hour fast. Yeah. I, what was the negative about that strategy was the hunger was a lot less manageable because one of the big benefits of intermittent fasting is ghrelin adaptation. So let's say you're eating at noon every day. Around one hour before, you're going to get a ghrelin spike, which basically prepares your brain and body. It's motivating you to go eat. And if you're doing intermittent fasting every day, you'll notice that I'm not hungry anymore for breakfast because you've skipped it for X number of days and your body's adapted. So when we were doing the all-day fast, it was a very good strategy for cutting calories, like overall calories. And this is another pro tip with calories. What really matters, in my opinion, is your weekly calorie deficit or surplus. You know, and I think when you shift out of a daily perspective to a weekly perspective, it opens up some other strategies, like maybe you're fasting one day a week or things like that. But 
the cal the hunger response was definitely more significant and we noticed that it was kind of increasing later as we you know, were multiple weeks into it so yeah i i frankly don't advise it how much did you guys excuse me while writing the book look into kind of the hormonal influences and hormonal swings associated with both fat loss and fasting well you're bringing up one of the big points we're hammering in, in one of the most important chapters in the book and obviously no one can escape the laws of thermodynamics calories in calories out however there's a lot of things that we can do to influence calories out and i think that maybe the number one thing is anabolism you know, muscle growth anything that increases anabolism is going to increase calorie output and of course you know if you talk to professional bodybuilders which you were one of them and you talk about their hormonal stack i mean it's it's a well-known fact that the more they're increasing their hormones the more calorie expenditure they're having now you don't need to be using all kinds of hormonal enhancers to get that effect i mean if even a person that's on on nothing starts lifting weights and starts you know make sure they got three grams of leucine with each meal and has you know four protein feedings a day and they're sleeping well they're going to be more anabolic and it's a really significant calorie expenditure i you know i heard a, a stat a long time ago and it was that each pound of lean muscle mass requires five thousand calories to synthesize it which makes sense right i mean you're building this new tissue that's never existed and that's not the workout calorie that's not the afterburn calorie that's literally just synthesis so if somebody builds you know 10 20 pounds of lean muscle mass you're talking about fifty thousand to a hundred thousand calories that need to come from somewhere so that's a big one cold exposure is another great you know strategy for increasing calories out both from the calories you're losing while you're exposing yourself to cold as well as the brown fat building and we're actually building a brown fat cap for people that are doing cold exposure so we'll probably release that later this year so yeah there's a lot of strategies people can do to increase calories out and i think that a lot of people just focus on calories in they just focus on reducing that and there's this point of you know you just don't even have energy to function and on the calories in i think the main two macros obviously you know just protein i mean that's the king macro for all kinds of reasons and then fiber you know fiber really trying to replace you know normal carbs with fiber i mean fiber is phenomenal for hunger and you're getting about 50 percent of the calories that you would normally get so it's it's a really good strategy just increase fiber increase protein progressively decrease carbs decrease fats uh, progressively and then find various ways to increase calorie expenditure. It's interesting. So Justin and Erica Sonnenberg wrote, wrote a book, I believe it's called The Good Gut. They're out of Stanford. And they actually argued the opposite. They argued fiber has very little benefit, if anything. And but they offered they, they argued kind of vehemently for for prebiotics, probiotics, like fermented foods and things like that. I don't know, I don't recall what their argument was. I've never had them on the podcast, but I, I love that there's a there's a paper I could send you if you haven't seen it. Have you ever seen any of the counter arguments against fiber? I'm sure you have. No, I'd love to see it. Um, I know I did look at the literature where they compared the the immune system benefits of fiber versus probiotics, and it was no contest. Mm -hmm. So I think eating fermented foods is certainly superior to just trying to get fiber. 
but fiber as a hunger management strategy like wade just competed at 50 years old at a natural bodybuilding show dieted for 18 months and i think he was eating like 100 grams of fiber a day so that was his main satiety strategy and i, I think managing hunger is a really critical strategy for for anyone and doug it goes back to resilience and resistance but you know it wears on you it will wear out your willpower if you're not managing hunger properly and we have a yeah. whole chapter on that so so talk to me about hunger managing hunger because like in my understanding there's two primary mechanisms that are driving people right it's like stomach uh emptying ultimately how full your stomach is but then there's also the, the brain signaling saying hey i don't have enough calories so how much are you guys looking into that in the book and if you could talk a little bit mechanistically like because obviously fiber is probably not going to shut down the brain's drive to consume but will that adapt in time yeah there's a peptide in the brain it's called it's called npy that i think th there's a term that some people have used and i experienced it it was brutal and they call it the hunger and i know that uh, some women i i know other people that have gone through it where they they don't necessarily have the genetics for getting shredded and they push their bodies way past their healthy genetic limits to get ready for a show and for me it was my my wedding actually and what happens is you're just hungry i was hungry for two years and it like it it it, it was just it didn't matter it wasn't ghrelin i mean ghrelin is a very short-term response and it was brutal it was it was very difficult to deal with and you know as it was looking at all the literature on hunger there's a peptide for satiety and there's a peptide for hunger in the brain so you know and if you look at the some of the new peptides that are coming out like semi-glutide um, i think they're they're also having a direct impact on on the brain so yeah i think peptides are really uh, it's a big one and you know it's very different than ghrelin for a long time i just thought it was this non-stop ghrelin response but it seems to be peptide driven it's a self-defense survival mechanism and i think you know when you're dieting if somebody wants to lose a lot of weight the key is you got to keep your body feeling safe and there's a lot of strategies around that i'm mean, making sure that you're taking your time because there's certainly a line that when you cross your body will fight back and it fights back uh with a a, a long list of ways from you, you know leptin lowering testosterone losing muscle mass increasing hunger peptides in the brain and you, you people tend to be in trouble and that's where they rebound so you really want to avoid hitting that that threshold I mean, talk to me about meal timing because like i want to come back to this conversation around resilience and, and all the different types of resilience but really talk to me about meal timing because there's so many influences or so actually there's there's multiple schools of thought some people say timing doesn't matter at all obviously i have i have my thoughts on where it matters but i'm curious how you frame timing of nutrients specifically maybe you could talk to how it influences uh, performance and how it influences sleep. Yeah. So I, I worked with some pro athletes and certainly I think for workout performance and athletic performance, it matters massively. You know, you want to make sure that you've got all the nutrients, including micronutrients for a workout or for a race or for some sort of competitive event. As soon as you're it just to start with hydration i mean if even if you're just dehydrated one percent your performance starts to drop and you know when people sweat you're really losing it's not just water it's minerals so making sure you got enough sodium enough potassium enough magnesium enough zinc for especially for uh, any sort of endurance event is critical making sure you got enough glucose uh you know for power athletes carbs is king 
And again, I've been a keto guy for, it's going to be 30 years pretty soon. I started when I was 16 and I'm going to be 46 this year. So yeah, I mean, there's no doubt there's enough literature that's come out on carbohydrates and power. And again, power is explosive sport. So I'm not saying you need carbs for lifting weights, but if you're some form of competitive athlete where you need power bursts, then I would strongly advise using glucose as your primary energy source. You have an, an issue creating a stressor that has nothing to do with your testes, but low testosterone is the symptom, but the symptom is never the problem. The symptom is only ever the result of the problem. So ruling out where stressors are coming from, the macronutrient needs, the biochemical pathways, I don't even know how many root causes I just offered right there, but I'm betting nine out of 10 people don't consider any of them. And I've had literal situations, and I've got before and after lab analysis to prove this, where I've tripled people's natural testosterone within the first six months. Because all I'm doing is looking for a hidden stressor that's impacting the way the cells are operating in the body and ultimately the outcome that the organism is going to function at. Another can of worms for you. And I want to talk about cholesterol. So, cholesterol is one of these things that I've had some cholesterol on the show, and I still leave sometimes more confused, right? So, you've got large molecules, small molecules, high density, low density. I know we could talk about probably hours. But yeah. Maybe you just give us a snapshot on like, what, how should we be viewing, like maybe a high level framework on how to overview cholesterol? Because people simply don't understand. Okay. Including myself. Yeah. So, if you don't understand, then forget it. Let's look at your total cholesterol to triglyceride values. If your total cholesterol to triglycerides at about a two to one ratio, that's going to be your strongest predictor for longevity. So if you don't understand the minutia, let's just look at that ratio to see if you even need to understand the minutia. Because sometimes you could have what may seem as a higher cholesterol or higher triglyceride, but so long as that ratio is in point, I'm really not that worried about you. So that would be the first thing that we would check off is looking at a basic blood chemistry and seeing what's going on with your ratios. After that, the analogy I like to give people in respect to cholesterol is that um, your LDLs are kind of like that, that old fairy tale of little kids leaving breadcrumbs everywhere they went to remember where they came from. Your LDL is kind of like that. It'll leave little bits of plaque throughout the circulatory system everywhere it goes. And that's why it can it is correlated anyway to cardiovascular events because if that plaque buildup becomes too great, then it can create a lot of problems for your vascular networks. However, your HDL is kind of like the janitor. So your HDL will literally go and collect these little droplets that the LDL left around, redistribute back to the liver for metabolization and excretion. So if you have very high LDL and low HDL, you've got a lot of kids making messes without enough janitors to clean it up. I like it. But if we've got more HDL than we have kids making messes, well, then we got enough janitors on staff. We're, we're going to be doing all right. The, the vascular system is going to be doing its job. And uh, what would be a detriment to us is to actually try to kill cholesterol. Because like I mentioned in the metabolic pathway chart there that I drew in the air, um, the cholesterol is going to be required for sex hormone synthesis. So if somebody's on a statin, we've also seen this in research, if somebody is taking high levels of statins and suppressing cholesterol, it is associated with lower testosterone. And statins also deplete CoQ10. So that would be another piece of advice. If somebody is on cholesterol medication, it does deplete CoQ10. Speaking of athletes and, and these, lab, these lab testing, one of the things that people don't often talk about is this dual analysis you brought up. And I'd be curious what you 
are looking for. I'll just kind of open up Pandora's box again, but I'm curious if you look for the NASA. I'm looking for anything I can get. So the the way in which I operate, kind of like I said previous, I, I refer to it as a performance anchor. If one has a stressor within their physiology, it's going to impact their adaptive reserve. So you can think about, um, or you can call it a recovery reserve, whatever you want to call it. You can think about somebody's recovery reserve for their ability to adapt from training, kind of like a pie. Think about it like a pie. If somebody has anything that is going to irritate or create issues for the immune system, it's as if you're taking a piece of that pie out. So let's say you've got a full pie of adaptive reserve from your training. Now, if you have a type of underlying stressor that you're not so sure about, you may be taking 20% of that pie out because now the immune system has to worry and respond to the current stressor that's happening inside the body because survival is more important than getting big biceps. So whatever immunity has to go toward the infection, your body's absolutely going to go serve it towards that infection. And whatever immunity is left over towards your adaptive reserve, that is what you can adapt from training. It's uh, it's the way in which I actually, I recalibrate somebody's uh, belief in themselves in a lot of ways because someone will have a hidden stressor. Let's say they have a bacterial and a parasitic infection. Well, they're creating a lot of hidden stress within their body every single day. So I talk to them about it as if 40% of your adaptive pie has now been taken and is dealing with this stressor. Because your immune system, for, for people who may be unfamiliar, it's involved in both the stimulus and the adaptation from exercise. It is what's creating those cytokines for pro-inflammation if I train my muscle at creating a lot of inflammation within the muscle. But then the immune system is also responsible for cleaning cell debris and putting the signaling in place to get amino acids, to get uh, things refueled and repaired within that area. So if we're talking about adaptation, and you know this goes way back into the early 1900s, the general adaptation syndrome. Um, if you go way, way back then, um, anything that's going to impact a stressor, your body can only handle so much. And that's why we've seen such a wide scope. Like you see stress decreases one's ability to adapt from exercise. We even saw in highly stressed out college kids that stress reduces um, the amount of strength and muscle they're going to uh, expect to gain from a program. This was done with leg press training, but it also actually increased their delayed onset muscle soreness simply because they were highly stressed out and those the adaptive reserve was absolutely at a lower level. So when I'm looking at a stool analysis or a blood analysis or urine, whatever I'm looking for, I'm looking for what I refer to as that performance anchor so that I can put it the pie back to full. Because if someone has a parasite or dysbiosis, bacterial opportunistic infection, if they've got a yeast infection, all of these are going to impact that adaptive reserve. And I said I recalibrate one's belief in themselves because if someone's working at 80% of their adaptive ability, um, you know dang well, we've already made correlations to training. Training is only useful if you can adapt from it. The, the stimulus without an adaptation isn't going to make you better. It's actually just going to wear you down more and you're going to get less of a result rather than more of a result and you're going to increase your risk for injury. So the way in which to recalibrate one's belief in themselves is to unlock the potential that they have within themselves, not by adding more performance things in, but by taking performance expenses out. What you guys don't see is, is it, is it a bad thing to eat a little pesticides or consume a little chlorinated water? No. But if it's constantly being 
especially when we're when we're training and eating eating higher volumes of food, we're constantly bombarding our body with small amounts, excuse me, small amounts of pesticide, small amount of chlorinated water. Eventually, your microbiome is just non-existent. Then eventually, I feel the absence of well-being. Maybe I feel depressed. Maybe I feel anxious. I'm like, I don't know why. Or maybe I lack energy, right? Maybe my testosterone's in the tank. And I'm like, I don't know why. That's it, right? It's 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 one of the most straight line correlations, having a really healthy, diverse microbiome and all these positive hormones and neurotransmitters. The more we can, so as I said, the first lens through which we make decisions in nutrition is remove the toxic burden first, right? Then we say minimize inflammation. I'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, then we say eat to fuel the microbiome. So if you guys were just to choose three lenses through which you make decisions, it's those three. So no toxins, no inflammation, eat to fuel the microbiome. So how do we eat to fuel the microbiome? Well, obviously we want to, so if you think of it like prior to 1925, you guys know there was no refrigeration prior to 1925. So what happened to foods? You left it out. It fermented. People have probably had a much more diverse experience of the microbiome because they're eating so many more diverse foods. There's nothing wrong with allowing your foods to sit out for a couple hours or even a day, right? It's it's potentially a good thing for you. Now, I'm not going to tell you to leave everything out, but just be aware of the fact that the reason our microbiome is very poorly inhabited is because everything's super sterilized. Everything's like goes from the fridge, the pan to our stomach. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's micronutrients, but what about the microbiome, which is just literally bacteria, right? So every meal should include meat, vegetables, in my opinion, a little bit of fat between 10 and 30 grams, and then something that's fermented every meal. Um, and it doesn't have to be a lot, but it can be something. You can have a little bit of kombucha. You can have a little bit of fermented cabbage, a little bit of fermented fruits, a little bit of fermented vegetables. You guys can make all these on your own. It's really, really simple stuff, right? So I would suggest, um, yeah, just like make these meals as gut-friendly as possible. So those are your three lenses. Do you guys all remember them? No toxins, minimize inflammation, Need to feel the microbiome. Now, I didn't talk too much about minimizing inflammation, but inflammation and the microbiome are, are almost inextricable, right? Gut health and inflammation are, are often more considered one and the same. And when I, when I write about nutrition, I often write about them as one and the same. But when we talk about inflammation from a different perspective, we can also talk about gluten and grains and vegetable oils and sugars, right? These things are going to be really, really toxic to your body and they're going to drive up inflammation for most people. Even dairy is on that list for many, not, not all, but many people. So you got to find out what works best for my body. So one thing I'll say that I didn't say on that list that I want you guys to acknowledge is carbohydrates are not bad, right? There's nothing wrong with carbohydrates. There's nothing wrong with eating some fruit from time to time. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, especially from an energy perspective, right? If you're obese, then maybe we drop down food. Or if you're someone who has a ketogenic diet, sort of drop down fruit. If you're on a ketogenic diet, then there's no room for fruit. But if you're someone who's training consistently, carbohydrates and fruit are not the enemy. I think it's been, people are, are sometimes confusing these different camps, being like, oh, carnivore works and keto works, therefore everyone must be low carb. No, your body needs and utilizes carbohydrate well in general. So I think it's, it's, it's not a good idea to be afraid of carbohydrates 
uh, especially for someone who's training. Here's why. We talk about energy production being the, the primary lens that we're trying to solve for. If your carbohydrate levels are constantly low, that means likely your cortisol levels are going to be up. So if your body has chronically low carbohydrate and insulin levels, carbohydrate and insulin are often inversely proportional. So one is up, the other's down. So if insulin's up, cortisol's down. If cortisol's up, insulin often, not always, but is down. So if you're someone who's constantly on a low-carb diet, you can assume that you don't have... Your, so I should say this maybe in a different way. Carbohydrates are your body's greatest lever to modulate cortisol. Carbohydrates are, are, are your greatest lever to modulate cortisol, which means just dampen the effects of cortisol. So we don't want to be afraid of carbohydrate. We don't want to overconsume carbohydrate because then our insulin levels become outrageous, but we want to make sure we consume it in a way that we say, did I earn it or am I, is my stress level elevated and maybe it'll help me modulate stress? Okay, so that's important. So we're just kind of going through this lens of uh, optimization of, of choices of food, then optimization of the system that it's going into, right? If I eat the healthiest food in the world and the state of my system is uh, dysregulated or stressed or the microbiome is dysbiotic or you name it, like X number of, or, or I'm under-rested or overtrained, it never has the same same effect, right? The, the healthiest food in the world can't impact your body as well if the system is broken, the system is dysregulated. And again, that, that's a whole ball of wax that we can go into at, at whatever length you guys want to. Uh, that's important. And then we have to look at, okay, how then do we, do we look at the energy equation? And what are the things that influence energy? If you guys look at that human behavior through the lens of simply trying to modulate and feel better. Everyone just wants to feel better, right? We're ultimately just trying to solve for like emotions. Like if I feel angst or fear or sadness or whatever, um, something can solve that, or we've learned that something often outside of me can, can serve, solve that, right? You're creating a coping strategy and what I call an external coping strategy, right? Whereas if we learn to create an internal coping strategy, then it's much more likely you can solve for, for, the, for the challenge you're experiencing. So what's the challenge I'm experiencing? Let's say I'm, I'm sitting with anxiety, depression, fear, overwhelm, whatever. And so, okay, uh, I've learned through probably years of conditioning, a state becomes a trait. And I've learned that this sugar or this pill or this alcohol or this drug or this sex or this pornography or the social media makes me feel better. And so therefore, every time I feel that way, I go to, I go for it, I go for it, I go for it. Even it's like, you know, what we could think of a million things that you guys are using as external coping strategies or potentially using as external coping strategies. Um, but what you don't realize is none of those are necessary. That's just what you've learned. So if you can become conscious of these unconscious habits, then you have the ability to change it for something that may not be destructive, right? Something that starts out in the beginning as a positive support strategy ultimately eventually can become a challenge, right? So in the beginning, it was probably great. It's like, oh shit, I can have this food. It makes me feel better instantaneously. That's awesome. But eventually that becomes a problem. So we have to become aware of, okay, it's, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel bad about myself. I'm not going to be angry with myself or be down on myself that, you know, when I was 12 years old, I started drinking soda because it made me feel good. You didn't know any better. That's okay. Don't, be, don't beat yourself up. But now that you know better, 
what would be a different strategy if you're feeling down on yourself to make yourself feel better? Let's think of some things that are internal coping strategies. Free, breath work, meditation, nature, walking, training, sex, human connection, right? You can think of so many things that are internal coping strategies, right? They're internal, they're positive, they're going to change your physiological state. Does that make sense? We become aware of our clients, and I, I have a couple of clients like this, one in particular comes to mind, and who they, they have the same strategy. They, um, they get stressed and they eat the wrong things, and the next day they come and they, they um, kind of repent, and they're like, oh man, I screwed up, I'm sorry, I'm going to do, it's okay. How do we build that in, right? How do we say, if, if we know at four o'clock every day, you become overwhelmed with what's happening at school, at work, there's a few things that we can, we can do preemptively to hopefully make you a little bit more resilient to the stress. Here's an example. You guys all know this, right? Let's say your stress level right now, let's say you're riding in an eight. You're like, man, my life's, my life's pretty stressed. Eight or a nine. Anybody there? Eight or a nine sometimes? Doesn't matter. You don't have to self-acknowledge. You can self-acknowledge. So, if you're riding in eight or nine, that is both physiological, like what's happening in your body, but it's also psychological. But as you also know, you can make your body more resilient or maybe more accurately, more anti-fragile to stress simply by increasing the robustness of the system. The nervous system become, can become way more adaptive to stress by improving some basic things, microbiome, aerobic fitness, inflammation. Oh, isn't that interesting? I just talked about those. Right, those are the things that can ultimately make your body more resilient to any type of stress. Meaning you can experience the same amount of stress as you are right now. And instead of riding at an eight, now you're at a four, even though nothing else has changed except your physiological system. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day. And I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.